to the Total Soccer Show. It's your friend Ryan Bailey here behind the wheels of steel in place of Taylor Rockwell once again. Taylor is still having a baby. More news on the arrival of baby Ryan Bailey Rockwell. I think that's what he's going with. As uh, that news comes in, we'll let you know. But for now, it's time to chat with a man who is to podcasting what Pep Guardiola is to playing against Burnley. It's Graham Rudham. Graham, how are you today? I'm very good, Ryan. How are you? Very good indeed. All the better of having you join us on the Weekend Review. Thank you so much for joining us again, Graham. Uh, how was your weekend? Yeah, not bad. You know, just uh, watching a lot of football and uh, ducking out of my uh, parental and uh, family duties, as usual. So, um, yeah, a pretty standard weekend. <laughs> as someone who has to watch a lot of soccer games at the weekend, I could certainly relate to that feeling. Uh, let, let's start. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of European games uh, on this Weekend Review, Graham. But why don't we start talking a bit about MLS? We had the uh, conference semifinals uh, starting on Sunday night with an upset win for New England over Orlando and Columbus getting the better of Nashville. Um, we can talk a bit about those games. But what I'm quite interested in, Graham, is your perspective as an MLS writer and perhaps an MLS fan in the UK, because you do write MLS for The Guardian, I think maybe a few other titles. And it's not super common for people in Britain to watch MLS. I think the time difference probably has a lot to do with that. What started you getting into the league and how come How come you follow it? Yes, it is a little bit of a strange one. You're, you're right to, to point out not many people uh, in the UK watch MLS, although there is a, a, a committed uh, small contingent of us who... Um, I follow on Twitter through the middle of the night, tweeting each other back and forth. But yeah, I think um, I started getting involved with MLS. I mean, a big part of it is I, I go to America a lot and, and on, on holiday and write for a lot of American uh, outlets as well. So there's a natural interest there to, to, to have a look at, at what they're doing and, and really just got excited for all, uh, from the, the, the notion of this idea of, of, of starting something completely from scratch. I mean, that's what MLS did in, in the 90s, obviously. And, and every season or every two seasons, you get a, a new expansion team, uh, as I know you know all too well, um, with uh, with Charlotte coming further down the line. And um, yep. yeah, it's, it's exciting. That's an exciting thing. I think I'm not dismissing what, you know, as a Scot, what Scottish football has. We have history and tradition, but... When was the last time there was a new Scottish, a new team in, in Scottish football, or, or a new league, or, or anything new? To be honest, you know, and I think maybe while I appreciate that that heritage and tradition, the the other part of me wants something new, and 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 I get that in MLS. Well, England did have a new team relatively recently in Milton Keynes, but we don't really talk about that one. To be fair, <laughs> I won't get you started uh, on did that. You, <laughs> do you consider yourself? I don't know what the correct term for this is, but do you do you consider yourself? an Americaphile? Do you like American things? Because I think that's one of the reasons I ended up here and I've been here 10 years. I just love everything American. Um, to a certain extent, I don't know how deep we want to go into this, but yeah, certainly I I, <laughs> I, I, um, I go I go to America a lot, both on holiday, as I say, and, and I've been there a lot on, on uh, work assignments and have friends there. And yeah, I suppose there's there's a lot of American culture that, I mean, naturally British culture, as you as you know, you know we're, we're, we're pretty aligned with, with American culture anyway, but but yeah, mm. certainly a, a, a lot of uh, America that, uh, that I like. All right, Graham, that's very good to hear. Why don't we crack on and start talking about some of these games that happened this weekend? We'll start with the headline game, uh, Chelsea taking on Tottenham. This was billed as the most exciting game of the season. Two of the most electric sides in the league. You know, the master versus the apprentice with uh, Jose uh, taking on Lampard. The battle for the top league spot, but it kind of didn't quite set alight like we'd hope. I I, I want to I want to give this one a name. I want to call this the parking lot derby because it was two buses parked at either side of the field. How did you feel about this one, Graham? Yeah, pretty much the same. We we thought this this was the the pick of the matches in the Premier League this weekend and it didn't catch light at all. Um I think from Mourinho's perspective, it was pretty much the game that we we thought he he would play not a too dissimilar um, system and and set up to the the game against Manchester City the week before the the, the surprising part was that that Frank Lampard um, kind of engaged in in a relatively similar uh, he adopted a relatively similar approach they were Chelsea were slightly more adventurous certainly in the in the second half when they they Lampard seemed like he told his players to to play the ball out, out wide a lot more to try and get in behind Spurs that way. A couple of opportuni- opportunities. Obviously, there was the Giroud chance right at the end, which um, was probably the best chance of the match. And and of mm. all the people in in the Chelsea team and in the Chelsea squad for that chance to falter, you'd probably want Giroud to, to to be the guy in the end of it. But 
it, that's maybe playing up how many opportunities there were. I think I saw that the XG in this match for both teams was with the value was something like zero point five, which uh, suggests that nil nil was probably just about the the, the right scoreline in the end. But um, we did learn a little bit about both teams. I, I think it was a sign that that both teams are going to stick around. You know, I, I think um, Spurs and, and Chelsea, obviously they both have sights set on challenging for the title this season. And and while there was no statement of intent from this game with one team winning to, to really um, take the place on as, as Liverpool's primary challengers this season, I, I think the result and the performance showed that, that they're not, they're not going to fall away. I don't think. Yeah, I think you're right there. And as as far as the scoreline goes, both teams being on form, both uh, expecting to show big things in this game. Nil-nil was pretty much written in the stars. We could have put your house on that being the result. But I guess maybe a question for you, Graham, is who's going to be happiest with that result? Because you can look at Frank Lampard there, very uh, impressive defensive performance, very solid. They they neutralised the threat really well, of uh, particularly of Hoimingson and Harry Kane. We can get into that in a minute. But also... From Jose Mourinho's perspective, this was a clean sheet and a point away from home. And I think I saw a, a nice line in the Guardian um, match review. It said, he'll always see beauty in defensive resilience, well, Jose Mourinho. And I thought that was quite a good line. So uh, who do you think's happiest with the point? Or can we sort of split the difference there? I think Mourinho's just about the happier of the two managers with that result. Although ha- having said that, he, he, wasn't, he didn't seem very happy after the match. And I, I think he probably recognises that Mourinho's Mourinho's uh, outlook when it comes to nil-nil draws, and I, I remember this from uh, earlier in his career, is he never seems particularly happy with them uh, in terms of his uh, his post-match demeanour because he, he he's probably thinking mm. a nil-nil is, is a good platform to actually nick a one-nil or, or, or any kind of victory. So he he's probably looking at Sunday's game as, as a missed opportunity, and it was an opportunity for Spurs. You know, if they'd created one chance through uh, Kane or Son, who have obviously been in, in exceptional form this season, they would have won that match because Chelsea didn't c- couldn't really lay a glove on, 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 on Spurs throughout the whole game. So, um, But yes, he, he's probably the, the happier of, of the two managers. I think it was similar to the City game in the way that the framework of the match was, was established by Mourinho. So even though Chelsea, just like City, not quite to the, the same extent as City, but they, they saw more of the ball, they probably created more opportunities. They were certainly um, a territorial advantage for Chelsea, but it was Spurs and, and Mourinho's game plan which really set out the, the structure of that match. So Chelsea are playing to Chelsea's tune almost. And, and so I think Mourinho will be quite happy with that. I think so. And I think, I'll tell you what, who the, the actual happiest manager from this game will be. Probably Jurgen Klopp, right? Because both teams dropping points here. And maybe we can tangent slightly off and talk about Jurgen Klopp because he had a very interesting little rant on BT Sport on the UK broadcaster, didn't he, Graham? Um, complaining about Liverpool consistently having early kickoffs. And uh, Des Kelly, the reporter he was talking to, kind of gave him, gave him what forth. He sort of stood up to him, didn't he? He did, and it, it was a, it was a remarkable remarkable interview in the way that it, it eventually turned into something that wasn't an interview. It was more notable than the match, and the match obviously had that that VAR uh, incident at the end. But the the post match discourse wasn't really about the match. It was about it was about the interview with Des Kelly. Um, Klopp's point. I think it's important to note that the Klopp's point is it's not necessarily a bad one. It has a lot of. Um, merit in the way that he's talking about how Liverpool's games shouldn't they Liverpool shouldn't have to play at 12:30 on a Saturday when they've played on Wednesday evening in, in the Champions League and I, I don't think you would really get any fan or any manager in the Premier League or even to be honest the broadcasters probably would would accept that as well you know it's not good for their product to have a a, a tired team playing early on a, on a Saturday and, and and not really putting on a spectacle which is what really they got with Liverpool on on Saturday the the issue that he, that with Klopp is he is angling his criticism he's aiming his criticism towards the broadcasters when really the broadcasters are limited by what they can do. Obviously, they have a contract with the Premier League that is agreed with all member clubs of the of the Premier League, and, and those restrictions are, are, are pretty tight. So BT Sport, um, who took the game on Saturday, or, uh, the Liverpool game on Saturday, they, they only have that 12.30, 12.30 slot. Um, obviously, at the moment, sorry, this is where it gets a little bit complicated. At the moment, they're showing all games at the moment in the Premier League, but the contract is still bound by these these time slots. You have like a 12.30 slot, a 5.30 slot on the Saturday and then Sunday games. But on the on the Saturday, BT only have the 12.31. One. 
They, they also have to pick the teams a certain number of times in a season. So you, that means that they, they can't pick Liverpool every single week. You know, they, they do have to show teams further down the table. Um, and then the other factor is that if BT Sport were to not, or Sky, I should say, as well, who hold the rights in the UK, if they were to, to pick other teams over Liverpool and let's say that they didn't pick Liverpool on Saturday, then Liverpool would receive a, a lesser cut of the of the TV money. So really Klopp needs to go to his chief executive to then speak to the other, other chief executives in the Premier League to actually amend the 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 TV contracts that way because the, the broadcasters can't they can't break their, their their agreement with the Premier League you know they they, they have to the work mm. in, in these parameters so that was the point that that Des Kelly was made probably more coherently than I've just made it and and yeah he stood up to Klopp and uh, and uh, Klopp didn't it, it felt a little bit like Klopp was a little bit out of his depth and that he was speaking about a subject that he doesn't truly understand but as I say. That doesn't mean that his argument doesn't have any merit at all. I think both sides do need to be listened to. Yeah, I think you're right there. And it did feel a little bit like Jurgen Klopp was almost biting the hand that feeds uh, because the broadcasters, lest we forget, are the ones who've kept this game going during the pandemic. They're the ones supplying the money. They're the ones supplying Liverpool with the money to buy all the fabulous players they have. So there is an element of that which uh, which Jurgen Klopp maybe needed to be more careful about. And as I say, we don't like to doubt his wisdom in these parts, but that was a very curious moment of the weekend. Let us pivot back anyway, Graham, to the game we're actually talking about, Chelsea <laughs> against Tottenham. Um, what was weird for me is that Spurs never brought on Harry Kane for this game. Oh, wait, they <laughs> did. He was just pretty invisible here. Uh, I think this was testament to Chelsea's uh, um, uh, abilities in this game. They did so well in neutralising him, and I'd say probably neutralising Son as well. It was, it was sort of Kante and Kovacic who sort of looked after it. They screened the back line. They seemed to just keep Kane out of this game and probably Son too. And they, that that was, if we, if we say that this game was... Um, you know, they were marching to Josie Mourinho's tune. That was Chelsea sort of doing a very good job of uh, cutting that tune out a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the big success of, of this game for Chelsea was N'Golo Kante. Obviously, in recent seasons, he's he's kind of been pushed and pulled around that Chelsea midfield a little bit. Sarri used him almost as a an attacking midfielder at times, which was a little bit peculiar. But we all know that N'Golo mm. Kante's best position is is at the base of that midfield. And, and that's how Lampard used him um, against uh, Spurs at the weekend, as you say, kept kept Son and, and and Kane very quiet. I think Jonathan Wilson in the Guardian described Kante's role against Spurs as a possession Pac-Man gobbling up all, all the, <laughs> the the Chelsea uh, Chelsea sorry the Spurs attack, and I thought that 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 describes what he, what his role was pre- pretty well. And and um, I think that will be key for Chelsea this season. I, I think for all the attacking talent that 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 Chelsea have got, they obviously added. Um, very impressively in the summer with Timo Werner and Hakim Ziyech and uh, Kai Havertz and they already had Pulisic and it, it's it's an embarrassment of riches up front but I think that the real key for them this season is if they can get Kante to, to play in that role as he did for obviously Leicester and then for his first season at, at Chelsea as well and if they can do that then uh, that lifts him up another level I think that gives them the defensive structure that you really need to be uh, title challengers from so yeah you're right to point that out I think that was the big success of this game was was that structure and how they use Kante to to uh, quell Kane and so on yeah that seemed to be key to it certainly and you mentioned an embarrassment of riches there it's a nice problem to have for Chelsea but it also is a problem I was concerned about the way this team was set up. I mean, um, say Kovacic, I think he had a mixed performance. I don't know why you couldn't have like maybe Havertz coming in and playing there and, or, or Mason Mount kind of being more of a number eight slot behind there. But the thing that, the thing that got me was Tammy Abraham starting in the middle of, instead of Timo Werner. And let's uh, bear in mind that Tottenham had a 23-year-old relatively unexperienced defender in Rodon playing at the other end. And I was just wondering, what if, we had we had Pulisic and Giroud come on for this game, Graham, and we saw that Werner was kind of off the pace. It's fair to say in this game as well. Mm-hmm. He, he, you know, he's, he's had a lot of minutes. So why wouldn't could it be an argument to have started Giroud and Pulisic from the start because that combo seemed really dangerous? And I, I don't know. It's an embarrassment of Rich's situation, but I felt like Tammy Abraham, who did sort of waste a lot of chances, maybe wasn't the answer in this game. I've actually been recently. I've been impressed with with Tammy Abraham as a centre forward, and I think he does have a, a a relatively decent partnership with Werner. Obviously, with Werner playing off the left, but the problem 
for Abraham is that in every single game that he plays for Chelsea or starts for Chelsea, certainly, he, he really needs to score and play very well to, to keep his place in the team, just the nature of, of that squad at the moment. And this kind of felt like uh, a chance that, that that he spurned. And with Pulisic coming on, as you, you mentioned there, Pulisic and, and Giroud coming on, it feels like he might be back on the bench, and that that's very that's very harsh because I, I think he has played pretty well. But that's just as I say, that's the nature of this this squad at, at Chelsea at the moment. Is you you really need to be on fire in every single game, or you're gonna or you're gonna be changed out. So I think we're probably going to see Pulisic come into back into that team. Obviously, he's had his 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 injury troubles recently. Mm-hmm. Um, if he finds fitness, he's he's a first team starter for, for Chelsea down that left side. I actually think. There's an argument that that even after all the signings, he's he's probably Chelsea's best player. Um, we saw that last season. He was he was the one who made things happen for them. Werner probably through the middle, and then I think Ziyech has nailed down that that position on the right. He's been very impressive in the past month or so. Um, Giroud is a, is a funny one. It feels like Giroud is still needed at Chelsea, even though a lot of the narrative is that he's that he's probably going to leave. In January, he, Giroud wants to play in, in the Euros, and obviously, if he's not getting game time up until the summer, then that's not that's not ideal for him. Um, so it, it feels like he's probably going to lo- uh, to 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 leave Chelsea. My my uh, tip, which I don't think this is going to happen, but just uh, while we're on the subject of uh, Giroud, the team that I think would be best for him and would be a good fit is uh, Arsenal. <laughs> I think Arsenal would be a good <laughs> fit for Giroud, which obviously uh, would be a, a bit of a turn up for the books. But yeah, he would fit that Arsenal system. Um, but yes, yeah, so, uh, uh, Giroud is, is uh, Giroud is a strange one. He's been a strange one over the course of his whole career, hasn't he? I mean, th- th- there's so many people that say he's the most underrated player in the Premier League that that actually makes me think maybe he's rated entirely correctly <laughs> and people actually rate him uh, as he should be rated. There's so many people who say he's underrated. But um, yeah, the, the, the Chelsea attack, I, I, it's not so much the Chelsea attack that I'm worried about. It's the, it's the Chelsea midfield. You're right to point, point out Kovacic. I think that's the... The one area in this team at the moment where you say you'd say there's a little bit of 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 flab. I think Mason Mount is playing well this season. Kante, as I mentioned there, yeah. is 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 had a great game against Spurs, and you feel like if he can nail down that role again, he'll be a first team uh, player for the rest of the season. It's it's that third member of the midfield, and obviously Havertz is maybe the the, the player you would bring in there. But then you look back to where he played at Leverkusen, he was. More of an attacking, he was he was much more of an out and out attacker at Leverkusen than I think Lampard has recognised so far. Havertz played on the, on the right wing and and as a false nine for large parts of the season for for Leverkusen last season. So maybe even he's not the the solution to that to that issue. But that that's the one position I look in that Chelsea team and I say they've not quite figured that out yet. Yeah, I think not quite figuring it out yet may be the headline of this Chelsea team because they were going for it in this game, but not quite enough cohesion to make it happen. They probably had the better of the chances, especially in the second half and with that Giroud late chance we mentioned there, getting on the end of getting a soft sort of volley on the end of a pretty poor defensive header from uh, from Rodon. Uh, and Timo Werner with that disallowed goal, a wonderful finish from him there. So there's plenty to be excited about for Chelsea and for Tottenham, of course, here doing doing a very, very good job, a, a quite Mourinho-esque performance. Um, um, Reguilon, once again, at left-back, I thought he was wonderful. We've mentioned him before. I think we mentioned him last week. Uh, I don't know if you noticed when he got fouled by Rhys James. Um, even if you had the fake crowd noise on, you could hear the scream <laughs> that he let out. It was quite... Did you, did you catch that one, Graham? I didn't, know. It was very it, dramatic. It feels it feels like a, a, that, a Mourinho-esque player should let out a, a blurred cuddling, curdling scream when 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 they fall to the ground that seems like a very a, a very Mourinho thing something that that would appeal to him <laughs> yeah maybe he was just thinking about Real Madrid and what they're up to at the moment that's what made him scream we'll get to that <laughs> later on in the pod Graham I'm going to put you on the spot though before we move on from this game if you had to place your house on it which one of these teams would you think has got a better title challenge going on Tottenham just just Tottenham just because I feel like um this is Mourinho's plan. With 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 Lampard and Chelsea, they have the talent. They might still figure it out, but it, it feels like the 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 approach and the strategy and the tactics aren't quite there yet. And if if Spurs are going to fall short, it's just be, I feel like it's going to be because they're just not good enough at the moment. And it feels like their their framework. I mentioned framework before, but it feels like that that's in place. And it feels like Mourinho knows what he wants to do with this team. And I think that'll take them quite far this season. 
Yeah, I think I'm inclined to agree there. Mourinho certainly seems to have a master plan going on and it, it is the second season. It's Mourinho's second season syndrome, which we're all living through here. He will reign in the chaos. That's my prediction. I'm, I'm glad you're back in that one too, Graham. Let's move on though to the other, well, one of the other big Premier League games of this weekend. Southampton taking on Manchester United, the Saints and the Devils, if you will. This one always seems to be a decent performance and we had a situation here, Graham, where Southampton were 2-0 up against Manchester United. Manchester United were wearing grey at Southampton and they were losing. We have seen that situation before <laughs> if you hark back to the 90s. They made a change at half time, just like they did in the 90s, but this was a slightly different change. This was a personnel change with uh, Edison Cavani coming on rather than coming out in a different colour strip. And a slightly different result for Manchester United. Yeah, and, and also that it, it was reminiscent of a game... Um, Rob Van Persie, I think, scored a hat trick or maybe two, but he certainly scored a late winner for Manchester United to win three two after being two 0 down at St Mary's, and and I think it was his first start for Manchester United uh, back in in mm. twenty twelve. So yeah, it was uh, there was a lot of deja vu going on here, and and also of course Southampton scored a late equaliser last season at, at, against. United at Old Trafford, so the 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 roles were kind of uh, reversed. But yeah, it was a it was a very entertaining game, certainly. Um, lots to keep your eye on, and and, and really was a bit of a microcosm of Manchester United under Solskjaer, in that played first half pretty poorly. I think they were a little bit unfortunate to go two 0 down. Actually, I think they obviously had good chances, and and Southampton scored from mm. from two set pieces, but nonetheless poor in the first half, and then a much better second half where they they came back to to claim the win. Manchester United did get James Ward-Prowse, didn't they, for those first two goals with uh, Jan Begnerick getting the first from a header from a corner, a perfectly delivered James Ward-Prowse corner. I mean, I, I just can't imagine a more perfect delivery of a corner where it landed. Uh, if you if you freeze frame when the corner's taken, there's eight Man United shirts in the box. There's five Southampton ones. It's Rashford who loses his man, I think, um, when Begnerick sort of makes the move to meet the header. Uh, Harry Maguire is marking nobody I think at this point so there there was some interesting set piece marking going on there but I mean can you can you think of a better a better way to deliver a corner than that Graham no and he's he's a brilliant set piece taker isn't he Ward Prowse I mean I think it, Ferguson said about Charlie Adam remember that his, his corner kicks were worth uh, 10 million pounds alone now I, I think the mm. caveat there is uh, this might have been at a time when Fergie had uh, maybe taken his eye off the transfer market a little bit I don't think there was ever anything of Charlie Adam that was worth 10 million pounds but um <laughs> yeah James Ward-Prowse set pieces are, are, are probably worth some somewhere around that and and he's worth having in in the team obviously for Southampton he's more than just set pieces but really I'm, I'm actually thinking more about his his England place Actually, when I'm mm. when I say it, it might be worthwhile having him in the team purely for his uh, his set piece ability, both from from corners and and also uh, direct free kicks, which obviously is is, is how uh, he scored the the second goal for Southampton and and indirect free kicks deliveries from there as well. So um, yeah, he's he's I can't think of a better set piece taker in in the Premier League at the moment. Yeah, and that second goal, which was a, a Ward-Prowse free kick, just another superbly placed ball. A, a free kick so good that it injured the goalkeeper that he had to come off as well. I mean, that that that's just incredible. We can criticise David De Gea because he did kind of dive behind the line. But even the best goal, goalkeeper in the world probably wasn't getting to that placement, was he? No, no, probably not. It, it was a it was a peculiar save from De Gea, and and, and maybe I would bow to. Uh... So a goalkeeping expert who would maybe know more about his positioning. It also seemed like he was a little bit slow to get over there. Um, and as you mm. say, kind of ended up behind the post. And I do wonder whether now with De Gea having a, a, a little bit of an injury, Dean Henderson coming on for the, the second half, I, I do wonder if if maybe that's a passing of, of the baton. You know, we, Dean Henderson has been very vocal about his ambition to be Manchester United's number one goalkeeper. Seems like he's pretty strong mentally and had an excellent season last season. While De Gea is, has had a, a few questionable performances, so um, I do wonder. While the, the the mistake maybe wasn't that 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 obvious from De Gea, it wasn't a massive mistake. It was an excellent free kick, as you say, from from Ward Prowse. But the actual injury that he sustained from it, um, I do wonder if that might actually be the thing that loses De Gea his his Manchester United place. Yeah, interesting. And if, if you uh, watch again that free kick, Graham, and I don't know if you've caught this, watch what Fred is doing. He does a, yeah. a slide tackle behind the wall. And I, I know we've seen this a few times where, where a defender or a defending 
player in a set piece will try and block the potential low shot by lying down. He doesn't just lie down. He goes for a full slide while the game's coming, while the ball's coming in. That was wonderful to see. I want to see much more of that. Why don't we see more of that? Yeah, a free kick, Klinsman. I think they should maybe uh, they should call that. And <laughs> it, it was such terrible reading as well. I mean, there's a we do, we do see it quite often now with uh, a player lying. Uh, lying along the bottom of the wall, but he left it. He left it so late, and then when Ward Prowse is taking it, it's it's quite clear to me anyway that he's 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 going to whip this and it's going over the walls. But Fred somehow thinks he's going to drill it low and die. Uh, it was just such terrible reading of, of of that free kick from both Fred and uh, maybe a little bit from De Gea as well. Yeah, well, well, things did turn around for Manchester United in the second half uh, with Dean Henson coming on, keeping a clean sheet. And uh, Edison Cavani coming on and sort of stealing the show in this one, Graham. The, the, uh, the Manchester United's first goal from Bruno Fernandes, courtesy of a really, really beautifully weighted pass from Cavani on the, on the right wing. He sort of loops it behind Bednarek. Whereas most wingers, I think, would kind of cross, try and bend the cross in front of the defender for, for the attacking player to slide in. He sort of it almost like he slows down time and sort of perfectly loops this ball behind Begnaret to Fernandez. I thought that was a really intelligent play from Cavani. Yeah, and I, I think this was a performance, a 45-minute performance. I know the circumstances around how Manchester United signed Cavani were, were less than ideal. It seemed like a bit of a panic buy. He was, he was available the whole summer window and, and Manchester United didn't move from him. And then when it became clear they weren't, get, weren't getting other targets, they they went and signed him on a £300,000 a week contract for, for someone at, at his age. It, there's a lot of those circumstances that don't scream to me that Manchester United have the best transfer strategy, tra- strategy mm. or approach at the moment. However, if you separate it all from that, I think what happened on Sunday was a demonstration of just how good Edison Cavani is. He's he when he's on form and it, it looks like he is as fit as he's ever been. There are some players when they move into their thirties, you can see them slowing down. I don't think Cavani's at that 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 stage yet. He looks, um, you know, I don't want to say peak Cavani, but it, 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 in terms of his fitness, he's not far off that. And and really, if Manchester United get that player, that 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 something close to Pete Cavani, they have one of the best centre forwards in European football and one of the best centre forwards in the Premier League. And and there's a there's a classic quality to him as as a centre forward. You know, he he wants to get on the end of chances, as we saw with the the, the two uh, the two goals to equalise and then win it. Um, and he's a, he's a, he's a he's an all-round striker as well. So as you say, he can he can pass the ball. He clips in across to Fernandez, and 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 that creates the. The first goal, and and I do wonder if uh, this was the start of Cavani for this season anyway, becoming a really key player for Manchester United. I know Anthony Martial has done well. I know Marcus Rashford can play up front. I know Mason Greenwood can play up front. That's maybe his preferred position. But there are question marks about all these players as a centre forward. And I think Cavani, if he can find his his fitness, which it looks like he has, um. I think he's the best player for that position right now. So it wouldn't surprise me if if, if he stays there for a while, assuming he he doesn't, of course, get uh, some form of ban for his uh, social media posts that happened after the game. Yeah, so his social media posts, he used uh, the same word that Luis Suarez, I believe, got banned for eight uh, eight games uh, when he used it, perhaps in a different context uh, with Pat- Patrice Evra. And we've seen uh, recent, more recently Bernardo Silva getting a one-game ban for using um, uh, racial language in a, in a, I think it was a tweet, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Or was it yeah. an Instagram post, which, which he took down? But still, um, that, that'll be interesting to see how that pans out. There's, uh, uh, I've, I've taken this from The Guardian, uh, social media postings are covered by FA rule e3 and if a comment is deemed to include a reference to a person's ethnic origin color race or nationality then that will be regarded as as a potential aggravating factor in any punishment so it's likely that um cavani is going to see something for this uh for this social media post after the game but um we'll see how that one pans out but but in far in terms of the game itself he certainly made a case for getting more minutes uh with getting the second and third goals too i think what really stuck uh, stood out to me, Graham, was his movement, the movement that he showed, the reaction times. He was just lightning quick for that for that equalising goal. Uh, it, he was he was just the first three out. It was, it was Alex Teller's corner came in. It fell to Fernandez on the edge of the box, who's I think was shooting, but it went towards mm. Edison Cavani. But he was just 
a few milliseconds quicker than everybody else first to react to get his head on the ball. And it was kind of similar with the, with the third goal in, in the 92nd minute where he, um, he sort of got that glancing header on it. Just, just quicker than everyone else. And it kind of reminded me of what we see from Erling Haaland at the moment. The positioning, the movement and the awareness just being absolutely first class. Yeah, it's the, it's the instincts of a, of a goal scorer, isn't it? You look at that that equalising goal that, that you point out there and everyone else on the pitch is is watching the ball from Fernandez, which picks up a deflection, spin towards goal and Cavani is throwing himself through the air. I mean, it's always uh, it's always difficult to describe a, a, a meme in audio, but I saw a meme of Ralph Wiggum throwing himself through the window, the Simpsons meme that is that is used a lot of time on Twitter to describe Cavani's action for that goal, and that was that was pretty much it. I mean, he throws everything into it, and as I say, it's 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 instincts of a goal scorer, and it's it's exactly what Manchester United haven't had. They have good attacking players, no one's doubting that. Rashford, Martial, Green, Greenwood, as I mentioned. All good players. You would even maybe describe them as as goal scorers. But in terms of of a of a, a player who his whole game is about getting the ball in the back of the net, they don't have anyone like that. And now, well, they didn't have anyone like that, and now they do in in Cavani. So um, yeah, very impressive from him. It was very impressive. One more thing on this game, Graham, I wanted to ask you about is from a Southampton perspective. We we know we we, we can certainly admire what Ralph Hasenhutl is doing at Southampton, but. Why didn't he go a bit Mourinho and try and park the bus after going 2-0 up? It seemed like he was still kind of leaving it quite open, uh, leaving lots of space for certainly for Bruno Fernandes to operate in and didn't quite shut things down like perhaps another team might have done when taking a 2-0 lead against Manchester United. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, it's, it certainly is a, a, mis- is a mistake because Southampton went on to, to lose this game. I, I guess from what He'd seen in the first half, Hassan Hutel maybe thought that the, the opportunity was actually there to, to get a third goal, which would have been a, a, a much more conclusive way to kill the game, I suppose, if they'd scored that third goal and there's no way back for Manchester United, rather than parking the bus and kind of holding on for the, the final 45 minutes. But it wasn't until the, the 72nd minute. I mean, even before Bruno Fernandes scores that first goal, there were signs that Manchester United were that they were rolling, that, that that something was happening, that there was going to be some form of fight back. So I, I do question why Hasenhutl waited until the 72nd minute to take off Shane Long and, and put on Gineppo, which was a, a bit of a change of system. And that was more, um, that indicated an intention to play more on, on the counter-attack for the rest of the match. But by that time, Manchester United had a goal back. And, and really, one, I don't know about you watching this game, but when Manchester United got that first goal, I felt like they were going to get certainly a second goal and, and, and possibly I felt like they were going to turn the, the match around. So it, it was almost too late by the time he made that change. Manchester United already had the momentum. So yeah, cer- certainly in hindsight, a bit of a mistake, but um, I'd imagine Hassan Hultel felt that they could they could get that third goal. Yeah, and full credit to Manchester United as well. They did deserve the win here. They've set themselves up nicely for their Champions League game against Edison Cavani's former employers, Paris Saint-Germain, later this week. We'll look forward to that one. I'm sure Taylor Rockwell, Manchester United fan, will be very keen to see what's going on at Old Trafford because Oli is currently at the wheel. We've seen him let go of the wheel a few times. Very firm grasp of it at the moment from the Norwegian. Uh, Graham, I'd like to take a moment now to thank one of our sponsors and to talk about one of our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach, Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. 
So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Artifact, a custom podcast company who's going to make a podcast just for you if you want them to. Artifact sets you up with one of their professional interviewers to capture stories about the important people or things in your life. Think of Artifact as an on-demand podcast studio and you can focus on anything you want. For instance, some people have used Artifact to interview their parents about what their lives were like before they had kids. Spoiler alert, they were wonderful. They can talk uh, to your you know, grandparents about maybe something if they were involved in the military or something like that. There's plenty of ways to use Artifact. And uh, we first introduced Artifact as a sponsor this past summer. But since then, other people have also noticed what Artifact are doing. The Wirecutter from the New York Times being one of those. They named Artifact one of the best gifts for family bonding for 2020. So how does it work? Let me tell you. You go to heyartifact.com. You tell them a few basic things about what you want your podcast to be about. Answer a free a few pre-interview questions. Schedule your interview. That'll take about 30 minutes with a professional podcaster. It'll be edited uh, by professional editors and sound engineers. They'll take care of everything and deliver a final product. If you would like to try Artifact, what you got to do is go to heyartifact.com, H-E-Y-A-R-T-I-F-A-C-T.com. That's heyartifact.com. And if you use the code TSS40, you'll get $40 off your first use. That's the code TSS40 at heyartifact.com for $40 off your first use of Hey Artifact. Give it a try. Thank you very much to Artifact for sponsoring today's show. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Today's show is sponsored by Credible. Credible Credible.com is an online marketplace that allows borrowers with student loan debt to see refinancing rates across a variety of lenders. If you've got student loan debt, you could benefit. There are lots of benefits to refinancing your student loans with Credible. With a lower rate, you could save on interest or lower your monthly payment. Who doesn't want that? That means more money in your pocket. You can get debt free faster. You can consolidate all your student loan bills in one place. And that gives you serious peace of mind. Credible customers have given awesome reviews about how much better their financial lives have been 
after refinancing. Some benefits of using Credible to refinance your student loans are that you see actual pre-qualified rates from multiple lenders, whereas with some online marketplaces, you'll get ranges of rates or ballpark estimates, and it only takes a couple of minutes to check rates, and checking rates does not impact your credit rating. They never sell your data, so you won't receive spam and phone calls from dozens of lenders. If you visit Credible.com slash TSS, that's C-R-E-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash TSS, and when you refinance your student loans with Credible, they'll give you a $200 gift card. So that's Credible.com slash TSS, and if you refinance your loan with Credible, they'll give you a $200 gift card. Fill in a few pieces of info to check what rates you're eligible for. You can only get this offer through our show's URL, Credible.com slash TSS. Finance your student loans and start saving message from credible operations inc not available in all states terms and conditions apply visit credible.com slash tss for details thank you very much to credible for sponsoring today's show this episode is brought to you by Michelob ultra the official beer sponsor of the nba want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive nba prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Graham, let us take things to the continent now. More specifically, Spain. We have Barcelona getting a resounding 4-0 win. Their second 4-0 win of the past week. Atleti, Atletico Madrid with a hard-fought 1-0 win at Valencia. Real Madrid, though, a little bit of a different story. Dropping points for the third game in a row. They've taken only one point from their last three. A 2-1 loss at home to Alaves here. What's going on here, Graham? Another another drop, uh, another drop, set of drop points for Zinedine Zidane. Does he actually have tactics? Does he pick the team and let them all improv and have lots of individual performances? What is happening here? Zidane's always been a, a funny one to try and figure out, hasn't he? I mean, going, going back to his mm. first spell, there were questions over whether he was any good uh, as a tactician even when he picked up his third Champions League title in a row those questions uh, hung around him and and they, they don't they aren't going away I think we've spoken about I think last week we called Atletico Madrid the Spurs of La Liga which was meant <laughs> as a compliment it really was um, and if it, it does feel a little bit like this season in La Liga set up for Atletico Madrid to to do well you know they're a team that that um enjoys the attritional side of the game shall we say under Diego Simeone and I think on the flip side of that this season doesn't look to be set up very well for Real Madrid because Zidane's style is he wants a, a high intensity game he wants a lot of running particularly from his uh, his midfielders and so obviously in this this shortened season with teams playing games every three to four days that's going to be difficult. And on top of that, Real Madrid have this aging core of players that they're still so reliant on. I mean, if you if you were to pick out the core of this Real Madrid team, it would be Sergio Ramos, Toni Kroos, Luka Modric, Casemiro and Karim Benzema. And those players have mm. been at the club for, what, 10 years, a decade? Certainly uh, certainly four of them there. And, and really, if you remove one of those players, um, certainly if you remove two of those players from that core... Real Madrid are in trouble, and that's what happened against Alaves at the weekend. Sergio Ramos is out at the moment. Karim Benzema didn't play, and Real Madrid just can't cope without those two players in particular. And there have been signs when Modric hasn't played as well that they've struggled. They tried Odegaard in the first couple games of the season, and and he didn't. He wasn't very a very good fit in that midfield either, and. So it just seems like this season things are against Real Madrid a little bit, and. Um, there's been a lot of talk, obviously, of Barcelona's problems this season. They certainly still have problems. Um, but in, in terms of on-the-pitch factors, I think Real Madrid have just as many questions to answer as as their uh, Catalan rivals. Yeah, I'd say so. They had 68% possession in this game, Graham. They had 20 shots, but as you say, not, not didn't offer too much here. 
I've got a theory that when Tony Kroos doesn't have a good game, Real Madrid don't have a good game. And I think that was kind of fair of this one. Uh, but I mean, maybe who was the best player here? Casemiro? And that says a lot when he's, he, you know, he's, he is sort of the, the fulcrum of this team in many ways. But it says a lot that other players around him didn't really shine in in this game. And we can give credit to Alaves here, by the way. They In the last month, they've taken four points off of Barcelona and Real Madrid. Uh, their goalkeeper was superb in this one, kept a minute. And, you know, they are kind of a bogey team for Barcelona, you could argue. Alaves certainly are. So they, they knew how to manage this game very well. They sat back with nine men after that, um, that that opening that opening goal and sort of forced Real Madrid into pumping in loads of relatively useless crosses. Lucas Prez up front for them was very good. But it, it was a story of, of disappointment from, from Barcelona. Can we can we talk for uh, sorry from Real Madrid I should say. Um that that um error from Tivo Courtois didn't do himself any favours there, did he? Um Ray Hudson on the US commentary, Graham, I don't know if you uh uh, got what feed you had, but he um, he referred to the pass as a garlic milkshake of a pass. <laughs> yeah, wonderful stuff. I did hear that actually. I did hear that. We don't we don't get uh, Ray on the feed here, but we can just hear him from over the Atlantic through the <laughs> through the skies. Um, yes, I did hear him describing that that mistake by Tiba Corta. and 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 Courtois has uh, been a pretty reliable figure for Real Madrid in recent seasons, but. I did read a stat um, after that 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 week uh, the game at the weekend, which said he, he's made more mistakes leading to goals than any other goalkeeper in La Liga this season, which raises wow. a few questions about him. Um, and and there was there was no one else really that he could he could pin this one on. I think it was Marcelo. I might be wrong about that, but the back pass to him was was fine. He had options on you know it was a lot of the time when when goalkeepers play a pass out and and, and it gets intercepted they can maybe blame the lack of options or a midfielder not not um you know coming short to them to, to take the ball off them. He had options in the left and right and through the middle and and really it was just it was just a misplaced pass and or or, or maybe he didn't see uh, the Alaves player there or, or, or I'm not entirely sure what it was but yeah it was it was a real uh, gaffe from from Courtois but th- to be honest. Even though that was obviously the 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 highlight of the match, if you want to call it that, certainly not a highlight for for Courtois, but Alaves deserved this victory. I felt that certainly for the the first eighty minutes, anyway, Real Madrid left it quite late. They did have a, a strong final ten minutes, where obviously they scored. But up until then, I thought Alaves were the, were the better team, and Real Madrid have struggled against underdogs this season who actually mm. like to work opportunities. Obviously, the nature of being an underdog, you're tempted to play long balls and crosses into the box and play for set pieces and everything like that. But teams that have actually backed themselves enough to to play passes in the opposition half, I'm thinking Cadiz and, and Shakhtar Donetsk this season, have come away from, from uh, Valdebebas, where Real Madrid are playing this season, with, with, with wins. And that's what happened on, on, uh, on Saturday for uh, Real Madrid against Alves. Yeah, and it was uh, that second goal which uh, Courtois had the error for. That was uh, Joselu, Newcastle legend Joselu, who put that one away. Uh, it, it was interesting because Courtois was under pressure. Um, it looked like he was going for the pass for Casemiro, and, but it landed sort of 15 yards short of Casemiro. Joselu absolutely should have been visible for Courtois, so I'm not sure what's going on there. So that was a mistake. And also, the, the penalty giveaway for um, LaGuardia's header into Nacho's arm. Uh, Lucas Perez converted the penalty, but it was... Nacho having his arm out quite wide. And these days, I mean, you see it quite a lot often in the Premier League, and I suppose you see it in the Liga too. Defenders in that position, in, in that situation, will have their arms behind their back now, just to be sure. Nacho was basically, you know, like those car dealerships that have the crazy blow-up figures? <laughs> he was basically doing that with his arms, wasn't he? So that we could kind of call that an error too, can't we? Yeah, it was a, it, for me, it was a sign that Nacho's not really played much over the last two seasons. You know, I, I feel like Zidane should have been shouting from the sideline, they've, they've changed the rules, they've changed the rules. You need to you know, play with your hands behind your back now because, as you say, it was... it was. Um, I mean, whether that should be a penalty or not is obviously a, another discussion. But in terms of the, the rules of the game, as soon as it happened, it was a clear penalty kick. And, um, yeah, Alaves uh, took that opportunity. Well, talking about those rules, Graham, I'm not sure I understand them anymore because at the other end, Eden Azar, who did go off in this game, um, how did he not win a penalty? He was felled by, I think it was Ruben Duarte, sort of tripped him up. It looked like an absolutely nailed on penalty to me. Uh, is there something I was missing in that incident? He, <laughs> I, I can't see why that wasn't given. 
I had a, I had a close look at this one because you, you put it. You mentioned that you you you, you would uh, talk about this. So I had a, I had a particularly close look at it because at, at the time I thought it was a penalty as well. But I'm trying to to pick out maybe what the officials saw there, and I think maybe it's because the the Laguardia leg maybe pulls away at the last moment. So it's it's maybe that yes, there is contact, but maybe not enough contact to, to bring Hazard down. Um, that's the only thing I can think of. I, 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 it, there certainly was contact. There was a, a dangling leg inside the box, and usually those two things equal penalty. But um, it, it, th- that was just another thing that made this a match to f- forget for for Eden Hazard, of course, because he, he he came off with with another injury. And really, now we were already talking. Um, I spoke to Taylor earlier in the season, saying that the pressure was really on Eden Hazard this this season at Real Madrid to to prove that he's not a one hundred million euro flop. Um, keep in mind that he would have been out of contract in this, this summer that just passed there. So Real Madrid could have signed him for free. He had a, a very limited first season, so that they're probably regretting paying £100 million for him already. He's only played 15 games for Real Madrid in the last 12 months, since November 26th, I think it was, 2019. And he hasn't played 90 minutes in any of those games. He's come off before the, uh, before the end of the match. So... That that is not exactly encouraging for Aiden Hazard. This is a player who we all know it can be one of the best in in European football when he's he's fit and on form. But Real Madrid have very rarely seen that player. I mean, if anything, he's played maybe a half or two of football uh, well uh, on form for Real Madrid, and and everything else has been a major major disappointment. Yeah, and, and some potential disappointment on the horizon for Real Madrid too. Shakhtar Donetsk in the Champions League coming up next, and then a tricky trip to Seville for their next uh, Liga game. So we'll see how that one turns out. That was uh, Real Madrid's loss uh, to Alaves 2-1 at the weekend. Let's take it to Germany, why don't we, uh, Graham? Uh, Borussia Dortmund against Cologne. They lost 2-1 also. This ended Cologne's uh, wait, a 267-day wait for a Bundesliga win. So the uh, local press calling this the miracle of Dortmund. This was a this was an odd one if you were a Schalke fan, by the way, because uh, they would be in last place if Cologne won, which they did. So Schalke were in last place. So they were effectively cheering for their closest rivals, geographical rivals, Borussia Dortmund, in this game. So <laughs> an interesting one here. What can we say about this game? It, it seemed to me that maybe Borussia Dortmund weren't set up well because you look at the substitutions they made, Mukoko, uh, Reina uh, and uh, and Thorganazar, all coming on and having a big impact. It seemed like Lucien Favre didn't set up to attack. Uh, granted, it was, it was a relegation-threatened side they're playing, but they didn't maybe set up the way one would hope from the outset. Yes, and there's been a lot of discussion. Um, I've been reading quite a, a number of articles on on Borussia Dortmund fan uh, websites and, and and blogs, and there is a lot of discussion about the the system that Favre is using at the moment. That seems to be where a lot of the scrutiny is 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 falling. Uh, and as as you say, it's not a good look when the three players that he brings off the bench uh, against Cologne were, were, were really the three players that that, that that changed the game for Dortmund, at least got them back into the match and and, and changed the dynamic of the contest. But it, it feels like there's a lot of focus on the midfield. Um, Emery Chan came back into the midfield for, for this game as Favre switched to, um, I suppose it was a 4-2-3-1 that, that he used, but Chan doesn't look very comfortable high, higher up the pitch. And then later on in the match, he actually, um, when I was looking at, at Scout, it seemed like he was he was playing in a back three later on in, in this match. So uh, the, the system doesn't seem to be working. There's a number of big name players as well at Dortmund that, that aren't delivering. I mean, a big one is Axel Witzel, who has been poor this season in different form. Another one is, is, is Julian Brandt, who we know has, has the ability He's one of Germany's best young players. We saw that at times last season, um, but he's been far too inconsistent and he really needs to to make his mark on games more frequently frequently to become a, a you know a, a real difference maker, a real star for, for Dortmund. And then maybe the big one is, is, is Jadon Sancho. Now, I know he scored a magnificent free kick during the, in, in the week in the Champions League, um, which kind of suggested maybe he was coming back to, to his best form. Obviously, he had an excellent season Last year, where I think he scored, I mean, off the top of my head, I think he scored, what was it, about 16 goals and got 17 assists or something around that that level. And, and this season, I don't know whether it's the speculation with 
the transfer to Manchester United has unsettled him. I, I, I don't know what it is, but he's been really underwhelming this season. And uh, it was the sa- same story on uh, at the weekend. He's, he's been pretty poor. And at times it's it's felt like Haaland is, is really carrying this team for, for the last few weeks. I mean, obviously he's been in, in exceptional goal-scoring form, scoring for fun in, in the Bundesliga, that game against Hertha Berlin, where I think he scored four, was it, in one game? Um, mm. He scored scoring for fun in the Champions League as well. But it feels like if you can you can stop him, which I know is not easy, that's not easy to stop Erlen Haaland, but if you can stop him, as Cologne did at the weekend, then you, you basically stop Dortmund. And uh, some real questions for Favre. It, it, it feels a little bit like the beginning of the end for him at Dortmund. There was a sense of that at a time last season, and he managed to turn it around. Um, so it's, it, I guess it's a it's a question of whether he can turn it around again. Yeah, that that is an interesting point. It just it makes you wonder. They've got so much potential in this squad, Graham. Imagine imagine if Pochettino was there right now. Imagine what this team would be doing. And it, it's just it seems like losing Favre time and time again. If there's a sort of less expansive team, shall we say, a lower a lower ranked team, shall we say, and they play in a low block, if they try and park the bus. As they put three centre backs out, they and lock Dortmund out, and they keep Haaland out of the game. Dortmund absolutely just can't handle it. I think that's one of the biggest problems here. And I, I don't know. Do, do you do you think that do you think Favre lasts the season if this kind of thing continues? Because this this to me seems like this is why Borussia Dortmund won't win the Bundesliga title. It's not because of two you know games where they drop points to by Munich every season. It's going to be games like this, obviously, which is, sounds like an obvious thing to say, but it's true. It's where they've got, they just lack fluidity. They lack energy. You know, it's, there's, there was no sense of urgency in this game, I think, was it was a big problem for Borussia Dortmund. So it does, as you say, it seems like Favre's, Favre's days are, are certainly numbered. Do you, do you see him lasting the season though? If, if this continues, no, he, he, he will be out at Dortmund just because Dortmund have, have been through this already with Favre. It feels like, he had his he had his one reprieve when they had the similar I think it was round about in fact was it roughly this time last year heading into Christmas and then into the new year where Dortmund were struggling for consistency and Favre's problem even even going back to his uh, his Gladbach days was that yes he he can build teams that play attractive entertaining football that when it all goes right they can blow away teams as Dortmund have done um, over the past year or so certainly in, in 2020 but. They don't necessarily win. Uh, Favre's not a winner. He doesn't win trophies when you just need to get through games by not playing well and picking up three points, which is exactly what Dortmund needed to go to do against Cologne here. They falter. And so I think if... if I don't think Dortmund will go through this for a second time with Favre. I think if, if this continues and the inconsistency continues, it's it's quite similar, I think, almost to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester United in that Solskjaer's My United team play some good football, but the question is, is the, the inconsistency against the lesser teams. And he also has had a bit of a reprieve, but it feels like he won't get a, a second opportunity to to turn it round. Quite similar with Favre. Having, having said that, I did decide to have a wee look at who might replace him? And I'm I'm struggling for options. I mean, obviously Dortmund may have some uh, some coaching wunderkind in, in the academy or someone that, that 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 could that could step up to the big job. I'm I'm not so sure about that, but um, there's not really an obvious candidate to step into that job. So that's maybe the only thing that that could keep Favre in, in his position. Yeah, and I did mention Pochettino there. He just struck me as someone who could really do something with this squad, but uh, as you say, probably not a likely candidate to uh, to end up at the Westfalenstadion. Um, let's talk a bit about Erling Haaland and particularly that big miss he had, a chance to equalise at the end. Didn't try the easier sort of option of opening up his body and, and putting it with the right foot and had a, had the ball come come in and sort of uh, side attempted to side foot it into the net. Uh, lots of people sort of criticising Haaland for that, but uh, uh, T- Taylor was texting me actually, and he made the point that it still shows his positional awareness. The fact that he got he was absolutely clattered on the edge of the area as that as that movement was building up. He still raced to the uh, to, to to the goal and and had the awareness to get into the right position um, to to, uh, to to try and get that shot off. So you, we we can give him credit there, but he's usually a lot more clinical than that, and he was kept more quiet here. He had two shots off target in total and one block shot. So three in total here. Um, and I looked it up. That's a lot less than he's had in other recent games. He had five shots against Club Bruges, for example, and four against Bayern. So he was kept quiet uh, a little bit by, by Cologne. And we can give them, uh, certainly give them 
credit for that. But one other thing, I, I, I wondered if it was because they were they sort of matched Haaland's physicality in a way. Um, when you look at the the first goal that um, uh, that Cologne scored, it it was um, it was sort of a. Harland almost got an assist with the sort of getting his head on it. But you could look, he was, if you watch it again, he was fouled during the build up to that, to that goal. When the, when the, um, when the ball, when the corner comes in, he's absolutely slammed to the floor. And when he's trying to get clear the ball, sorry, I, I, I misspoke there. I think it was Julian Brandt who sort of got the, uh, the, um, the headed assist, if you will. But Harland, who could have potentially made a clearance was completely wiped out in that movement. And it just made me think maybe they, they sort of knew how to handle Harland in this game. Yeah, a little bit. And, and it was certainly a, a poor performance for him. I mean, my, my overriding instinct, and, and I don't disagree with anything that you that you said there about Haaland's performance, this this wasn't a good one from from him. But I, I think he scored something like twelve goals in his last nine games or something. Or this was this was the first game in in eight or nine matches that he's not scored in for Dortmund. So my overriding instinct is to think, well, this guy needs a bit of help from from his teammates. You know, he he needs someone else to step up. He can't just do it all on his own. And and watching this match or watching the the, the replay of this match. I was looking at players like uh, Paslak, a, a left back, who's a, a, a major downgrade from uh, uh, Rafael uh, Guerrero. Uh, can't say that Guerrero at left back, <laughs> um, who's one of the best attacking fullbacks in Europe. You would say on his day, and and it just felt like Paslak was didn't know what to do in in the final third. But I feel like if you if you give Haaland more support, not just in terms of productivity, but getting more players around him, then you attract some of maybe the the physical attention that he got from from Cologne. And again, not to not have any sympathy with Haaland. Obviously, the referees need to do a better job of of protecting him and protecting the the better players in the game. Um, I think most people agree on that. But mm-hmm. he, he's a big guy himself. You know, he he. he I feel like. It, if he's getting roughed up, then he probably should give a little bit of it of it back, and I think he does generally. I think he's pretty good at that. I think he's a very physical. Um, he's obviously very uh, tall, and to, to look at him, you know, he's he's a pretty strong, strong, strong uh, young guy. Um, but yeah, maybe this was a a little bit of an insight into what he will face. Certainly from um, no disrespect to Cologne, but from the the lesser sides that maybe can't match Dortmund for for sheer talent, they'll maybe try and to, to look up uh, to rough up Haaland uh, in future matches. So this was a taste of something that he he might just have to get used to. I mean, if you look at someone like Harry Kane, I mean, how many times does does Harry Kane uh, get kicked off a pitch or teams try to 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 kick Harry Kane off a pitch? And he, I'm not saying that it excuses it, but he just finds a way to deal with it. So Haaland will need to do the same, I think. Yeah, that would be a good showing of his character. I agree with you there. Um, before we wrap up today, Graham, one more thing on Haaland. If you had to call which which club he ends up at next, I know we don't want to wish that on Borussia Dortmund fans anytime soon, but I mean, it feels like Real Madrid or maybe Manchester City to me would be likely candidates. I did rule out City because I thought he was a bit too much he was a bit too Ibrahimovic-esque for Pep Guardiola yeah. to cope with. But the more I think about it, the more I think he's actually quite perfect for them. You know, he's really good at the build-up play. His positioning is second to none. If if uh, City get back into the mode of having those wingers pushing to the byline and putting a ball into the middle for a player to tap in, which was the archetype Man City Pep Guardiola goal, um, then then he'd be perfect for that because he's not the huge aerial threat despite his size he is the guy who can get get himself in the right position in the box and stay strong in the box so um that's my long-winded way of saying which club do you think he'll end up at next i i think he'd be perfect for manchester city however i don't think he'll end up there just because i think pep guardula for whatever reason and i think it is a bit of a flaw of his doesn't seem to like strikers like Erlen Haaland you, you you mentioned there that the, the Zlatan comparison that, and that's exactly it you know Zlatan lasted one season at Barcelona before he was bombed at the club um Real Madrid would be another good option for him but it feels like if Real Madrid are going to spend big on a striker it's probably going to be on Kylian Mbappe in fact it's it's definitely going to be on Kylian Mbappe um just because they've lined up that move for a number of years Mbappe's a Real Madrid fan since since a young boy and it, it feels like things are falling into place for that move to happen I think, I know we've just spoken about Cavani being the, the, the striker Manchester United have needed, but obviously he's only there on a, on a one-year deal with, a, with an extra additional year. So Manchester United will probably be in the market for a striker again before too long. However, 
does Haaland want to go to Manchester United? Obviously, Manchester United are a big club who can still achieve things in the game, but we're talking about an elite tier talent here in Erling Haaland. He'll want to win Ballon d'Ors and Champions League, and maybe Manchester United aren't quite at that level yet. The one that I think I don't I haven't seen mentioned all that much, but it, it, it feel I'm surprised it hasn't been mentioned actually. Is uh, and Dortmund fans really will not want to hear me say this, but as as uh, Bayern oh. Munich. And uh, obviously that's a trade route that is well established over a number of years. I know Robert Lewandowski is, well, he's probably the best player in the world at the moment, isn't it? Isn't he? Uh, he would have won the Ballon d'Or this year if there had been a Ballon d'Or. But he is into the latter years of his career. I don't think a move would happen next summer or maybe even the summer after. But if, if Haaland wants to bide his time, obviously he's still very young. I mean, what is he, 20, 20 years old? Um, yeah, he shouldn't really be in any rush. Dortmund are still, for all their flaws, they're still a Champions League team. They're still up near the top level of the Bundesliga. So if he wanted to wait that out, it, to me, it feels like Bayern Munich would be the best place for him to be a team that wins titles and trophies every season and to be a team that is kind of already built for him to just slot into, quite similar in style to Lewandowski. And he would do well there. And obviously, he, he already knows the culture in, in Germany and the Bundesliga. So uh, sorry, Dortmund fans, but... <laughs> That's if oh. I was Alan Haaland, I'd be looking to follow in the st- footsteps of uh, the other guy that betrayed Dortmund before him. <laughs> no offense to our Bayern Munich listeners uh, out there, but uh, the idea of them weakening a rival and strengthening again in this manner that does kind of make me sad. Almost as sad as the fact that Erling Haaland was born in Leeds and could have played for <laughs> England if he wanted to. That that also keeps me. There's up also there, there's a number of the. I mean, Gio Gio Reyna is born in England as well, wasn't he? And yeah, there's a number there's a number of these kind of uh, expat football sons of expat footballers born in England who could play for England. There's a, there's a couple others as well that I'm pro- I'm forgetting about, but yeah, Haaland uh could have played for England, but uh he chose uh Norway probably cuz Norway've got better chances at major tournaments. Oh, the dagger. The dagger at the death from Graham Rutherford there. Thank <laughs> hey, you very look, much. Scotland By the way, we... are at major tournaments now. We can, it's, it's free range, it's open range and everyone, we can have a go at anyone now because we are there. Well, Scotland in England Eurogroup. Let's uh, let's revisit that conversation, shall we, when that one comes closer. Uh, Gia Reyna, by the way, good. But thank you for mentioning him, getting a nice assist for uh, for a Borussia Dortmund's consolation goal there. More more strength to him. But you, you make a good point there. With, with Sancho, Haaland, Bellingham and Reyna, Borussia Dortmund are basically made in England, right? <laughs> yeah, you can claim that one if you want. You've got the the second best team in Germany, not not even the best team in Germany. <laughs> well, we we established last week that Scotland invented the telephone, the internet, and everything we use in modern society. I'm going to say that England invented Borussia Dortmund, and that's how we wrap that one up. How do you feel about that? Fair enough. I'll give you this one. <laughs> Graham Rutherford, an absolute pleasure to have you on Weekend Review once again. Thank you so much. Uh, you have yourself a wonderful day. Appreciate you. Thanks, Ryan. It's, uh, it's always fun to be on.